This podcast is supported by Netflix Instant Streaming. Thousands of TV episodes and movies on your computer or mobile device instantly streamed by Netflix to save you time, money, and hassle. Free 30-day trial now at netflix.com APM. S. James Gates is a physicist, a theorist on the exotically named frontiers of superstrings and supersymmetry. These are fields where science is trying to reconcile its own most baffling contradictions. And whether you can fully comprehend string theory or not, its basic assumptions stretch our imagination about the nature of the universe we inhabit. James Gates brings this home with ideas and questions we can all chew on and be enriched by. He lets us into the playful, creative, even spiritual act of naming in science. He's working to evolve the cosmic language of mathematics, much as poetry evolved alongside prose to tell the whole story of what we're made of and where we came from. And he sees codes embedded in reality, something like the codes embedded in computer programs. I remember watching the movies The Matrix, and so the thought occurred to me, suppose there were physicists in this movie. How would they figure out that they lived in The Matrix? One way they might do that is to look for evidence of codes in the laws of their physics. But you see, that's what had happened to me already. Uncovering the codes for reality. I'm Krista Tippett. This is On Being from APM American Public Media. Sylvester James Gates, Jr. is a professor and director of the Center for String and Particle Theory at the University of Maryland, where he's a Regents professor. He's also a member of the National Academy of Sciences. I interviewed him in 2012. I also spoke with him once before, years ago, for a program on Einstein's ethics. We talked then about the inspiration James Gates drew from Einstein's little-remembered passion for racial equality. James Gates spent part of his own childhood attending segregated schools, but he went on to become the first African-American to hold an endowed chair in physics at a major U.S. research university. And his work on supersymmetry, a feature of the universe that might help illustrate string theory, is part of the greatest controversy in physics since Einstein. How to explain the fact that the universe seems to follow different rules at its highest levels and its smallest levels? String theorists suggest that deeper than atoms, deeper than electrons, behind quarks, filaments or strings of vibrating energies animate all the richness and diversity of the cosmos. James Gates' own early interest in science was sparked by books about rocket ships by a writer named Willie Lay and a movie called Space Waves. Isn't it interesting that space is the word uh, we use it doesn't even begin to convey what you know about <laughs> what we call space now. I like to tell people that uh, from reading the books by uh, uh, Willie Lay, I had my own personal big bang between my ears mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Uh, around age eight or so, you know, I had an idea about how large the universe must be. And it, and it didn't come from any great deep insight. The point was that as an eight-year-old child, I saw these tiny dots of light in the sky 
And when I realized that they were places, the question was, well, gee, how far could they be if they were that small? Mm-hmm. And so I just had a sense of the enormity of the size of the universe, not by any scientific or mathematical scale, but just sort of in a personal relationship sort of way. Uh, that's when I kind of knew where I was in the universe. It, I, I, you know, it's a very strange thing for an eight-year-old kid to, to, to come upon, but that's what happened to me. And you also, I understand, were reading science fiction. You had a big science life and a big fantasy life. And in fact, both of those things worked well with going into physics. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, That drive to learn to read actually caused an intersection with another very famous name of, of science fiction, namely Isaac Asimov. Oh, right. Isaac Asimov. Uh, had a, another pseudonym uh, uh, called Paul French, and he wrote a series of children's books of adventures on Mars. I didn't know that. Yes, and the character's name was Lucky Star with two R's. <laughs> and um, my mother died from cancer uh, in 1963. Right. And uh, one of the ways that I avoided having to deal with that horribly painful situation was to escape into the world of science fiction and fantasy. Hmm. And so that was a very powerful force impelling me uh, to exercise my imagination. Then on top of that, we have kind of what I call a math bug in our family. My my grandfather could neither read nor write, but he could do simple arithmetic. Hmm. And my dad never finished high school, but he was clearly interested in mathematics. I remember watching him studying trigonometry and um, even some calculus as he was uh, a soldier, uh, and particularly when he was working with artillery in the U.S. Army. So I wonder, when you, is it right that you wrote the first ever doctoral dissertation at MIT on supersymmetry? That is absolutely true. I can't (laughs) say, I can't say it's the first in the world because it probably wasn't. Mm -hmm. There's no kind of official registry of these things. Right. I mean, but it it was pretty new when you were writing about it. Absolutely. And I was just totally blown away by the idea that I was alive at a time when there were these mathematical equations that said there were more forms of matter and energy than anyone had ever imagined before. I just couldn't believe I could get so lucky. So I'm going to risk asking some really silly questions, but I'm suspecting I'm not the only... Well, okay, all right. But So one thing I do understand is that symmetry is a quality that's found in nature, kind of lavishly. Absolutely. Right? And so is this kind of a magnified, expanded manifestation of that? Yes. mm -hmm. Let me talk about symmetry for a second, Mm -hmm. because it turns out that we humans are exquisitely wired for symmetry. The symmetry of the face is apparently something we are um, perhaps even genetically coded to look for in faces. Mm-hmm. It shows up in strange places in our art and in our music. It's Like I said, it's almost like... In flowers, like, right? And I mean, it, in, the, in yeah. the design that you could say. And then nature, nature, you're right. And then perhaps our human... Uh, affinity for this is a reflection of what nature does because nature uses symmetry 
uh, in enormous numbers of places for the shape of a flower or a snowflake. Uh, it, any place where we humans look out and we find something beautiful, if you analyze it long enough, you'll probably figure out that we're looking at a symmetric image. Mm. But then nature turns around and pulls a trick on us because if the world were perfectly symmetrical, we could not exist. And so nature in the end breaks symmetries. And it turns out that it's by the breaking of those symmetries that the laws apparently of nature that allow human beings to exist uh, occur in the way that they do. Mm. This may be a, a stretch to go here, but when you were a young physicist, physics had made incredible foundational breakthroughs in the early part of the 20th century. And then those breakthroughs enabled other breakthroughs, which led to, you could say, it, an incredible lack of symmetry in terms of the understanding of the universe, right? That there, that there were That's fundamentally... A good way. Is it? Chris, are you sure you're not a scientist? <laughs> I'm trying. I'm doing my best. So there were fundamentally competing, unacceptably irreconcilable understandings of gravity. Oh, yes. And as, you know, Freeman Dyson, this, he, he gave me an, a, a picture that has been useful, that... that there were ways to observe the laws of physics at what he called the mountaintops, which is where Einstein was so astute. And then the other end of things was the rainforest was total That's chaos, right. <laughs> seething chaos. Right. And yes, you're exactly right. That's a great analogy and in, in a way to think about uh, physics. When I was a young theoretical physicist, I wanted to do something I think a lot of us want to do. Um, I wanted to find a beautiful mathematical piece of magic that was also an accurate description of something in nature. That desire drives us. And so when I began to understand the kind of mathematics that Einstein established, the mountaintop mathematics, let's call it, and also the mathematics of people like Schrodinger and Heisenberg and uh, Bohr, mm -hmm. which we can call the rainforest mathematics, I was in fact particularly struck by how very different they were. When I was in the rainforest mathematics, I even had a waking daydream about the equations I was studying called Schrodinger's equation. Right. And uh, so this dichotomy struck me in my second year of college, like, wow, can it really be so very different? And string theory is an approach to reconciling those things, right? Absolutely. Is that the right word, reconciling? No, I mean, that's a great okay. word to use mm -hmm. because one of the interesting things about symmetry is that even though we get to these places where things look different, sort of deep underlying that, we have kind of an intuition that it's got to be simpler than that. Okay. And then if you think about, say, the mountaintops where everything is orderly or, and the rainforest where everything's chaotic, the quantum and the and the higher levels of physics, is the idea that this string, you know, it's one entity, but that depending on what forces are playing on it at different ends, it may look wildly different or sound wildly De depending different? Depending on, in fact, it works like a real string, depending on how it vibrates, determines what kind of force you think you saw. Okay. So it can vibrate one way, mm -hmm. and you'll say, mm-hmm, well, that's an electron. That, let's say that's a C note. Okay. Uh, if it vibrates a different way, you say, no, no, that's uh, a photon. Let's call mm -hmm. that the F note. And so the, all the various ways in which the string vibrates are, from our perspective, we would identify as different particles. Okay. That means that our view of the universe is very different 
one of the things I like to tell people is with string theory, we have a view of the universe where we become essential to its structure. That's not true for the equations beforehand. Okay. So at a philosophical level, we become part and parcel of what our universe is in a way that I've never seen done in science before. With string theory, it's as if we get a more complete version of the telling of the story of our existence. And this is On Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, uncovering the codes for reality with string theorist S. James Gates. Something that you have written about that's part of your endeavor is, is naming what you see. Right? So, I mean, is that one way that that we interact with these physics just by, by naming what we see? You know, in many cultures, the, the act of naming yeah, it's, is regarded as a very, very powerful thing. Yes, it's creative. And for us, the naming represents a, a celebration of becoming aware, of knowing the universe at a different level than we had known before. Um, I, one of my favorite examples is, is something that today we just take for granted It's called the electron. Mm -hmm. But there was a time before anyone ever dreamed that such an object could exist. In fact, we know the first person who had that dream is a guy named J.G. Stoney. He was an electrochemist in England. And he said, hmm, there's a funny bit of possibility that there's a bit of matter smaller than an atom. And he was a person who who later actually named the object the electron. And so... What does the naming do for us? Well, once we know it's there, we can start to use it. And boy, we're using it at this very instant with the electrons that we're manipulating to talk back and forth. And so the naming, right? right? So this comes from the naming. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit like magic. You know, it's like uh, in the Harry Potter movies, there are all these spells, conjurus, this and that. So thrilling. Yeah. Exactly. So in some sense... If science conjures, it's when we get a clear picture of something that we didn't know and we give it a name. And so everything we're talking about here, the strings and even the electrons until not that long ago, were not proven. They're unseen. But you talk about the telepathic nature of mathematics. Yes. So that even before some of these things can be seen in this literal sense, uh, the theoretical physicist has this extrasensory perception organ. <laughs> yes. Um, mathematics is a sensory perception organ for those who learn how to use it that way. Mm. Um, the um, example I like to point out most is the idea of the atom. Again, today, a very mundane idea. You say atom, and people yawn and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we know all about right, atoms. Right. But you can ask, who was the first person to understand how big an atom is? You know, this is a question you very seldom encounter, but the answer turns out to be rather surprising. It's a guy named Albert Einstein. Really? Yes. Using his equations and comparing that to what was observed, he had to 
figure out what was the size of the atom, and he did. So in that sense, it was his mathematics that let him see the atom. Nowadays, we actually have technology. You can go in some very fancy laboratories and look through things called atomic force microscopes, and we can actually see atoms. Mm -hmm. But Einstein was the first person to do it, and he did it with math. You know, I really want to ask you, um, I've talked to various people over the years about this notion of whether mathematics is invented or discovered. You know, you use language that is related, but also distinct and interesting about science being about uncovering the codes for reality. Yes. Mm, How do you think about this invented versus discovered question? I oscillate, Krista. Okay. (laughs) Quite frankly, I oscillate. Yeah. It... It feels as though one makes a discovery of something that was already there. It often feels that way. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the equations are trying to tell you a story. It's a little bit what I hear about when authors discuss how they work, that when you write a character, then the character at some point begins to take over and begin to to determine, right, come to Mm -hmm. life, and then gets you to tell the story that the character wants to tell. Mm, mm. This sense of finding the mathematics that was already there is very similar to that, I think, that we discover these things, but there's something that seems to be pushing often. I mean, when you do the calculations, it's as if there's an imperative to follow a, a path and that this path then tells you the deeper story that the equations are trying to get out for us. So, you know, when I was reading you and just kind of digging around on the Internet, I found um, a religious uh, blogger, also a scientifically literate person, who was taking your idea of codes that structure reality, that are embedded in the essence of reality, and just thinking about that theologically for its theological potential. Sure. So let me uh, try to give a little bit of background. So as you earlier asked me in, the, in this interview, I'm, I'm one of the first people in the U.S. to worry about this thing called supersymmetry. Mm-hmm. And I've been worried about it all of my professional life. We've never seen an experiment saying that, yes, I'm here in nature, but the mathematics has just been amazing. But there are problems that no one has solved yet in this mathematics. In the middle 90s, I decided I was getting sufficiently old that I could make a fool of myself if I wanted to and try to solve some of these what problems that people regarded as unsolvable. And in doing that, we were led first to a, a, a graphical technology, mm-hmm. something we call the dinkras. Uh, right. This is a word that comes from traditional uh, West Africa uh, languages. Um, but we found these mathematical objects which sit inside of the equations with the property of supersymmetry. Then secondly, even more shocking for us, when we analyzed these objects very carefully, we found out that they have attributes of ones and zeros in precisely the same way that computers use ones and zeros to send Hmm. digital information. And in particular, the kinds of codes we found, which was the most shocking thing for us, is that there's a class of codes that allow your browsers to work um, in an accurate way. They're called error-correcting codes. We found a role for error-correcting codes in the equations of supersymmetry, and this was just (laughs) stunning for us. In fact, it was so stunning that 
it was at least eight months before any of us would sort of admit how bizarre it was. <laughs> and this is a group of mathematicians and physicists. It wasn't just me. I, I really do need to not, you know, acknowledge. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. think that science is solitary. It turns out it's not solitary. Oh, yeah. and it's, a, it's a communal activity. And so there were three physicists and three mathematicians, and we wrestled with this stuff. And like I said, it was months before we would admit how bizarre this result was. Was it for you that was so bizarre that you hadn't expected to see that overturned what you went into it with? Well, because I was just trying to solve, like always, I'm just trying to solve an equation. Okay. Um, But to find the kinds of things that are in the same classes of strings of ones and zeros that are also allowing browsers to work, Mm -hmm. I never imagined that, that that was possible. In fact, there was this physicist named John Wheeler who maybe 20 or 30 years ago made the assertion uh, that goes by uh, an aphorism uh, he invented. He said, it from bit. It means everything. Bit means computer bits. Mm -hmm. Most of your listeners probably have never heard of of John Wheeler, but he's also the man who invented the word black hole. And almost everybody knows that word. All right. So when he uh, made the statement about the structure of the universe, that's the it, must somehow come about from information, those are the ones and zeros, I thought the guy was crazy. So there was this earlier phase in my career where I couldn't imagine that the equations of physics would wind up having a substructure of ones and zeros, not because you're trying to calculate something, but because it's intrinsically part of the equations. Oh, and so, so one um, place to take this is that rather than it being a theological notion, that we are in fact a computer program. Is that yes? But let me let me give your blogger some some do though some props as some young people okay. would say. Okay. Because uh, I there is a blogger who so we wrote that we wrote this story for an English journal called Physics World. It was published in the summer about the adinkras, right? About the adinkras mm-hmm. and the codes. Mm-hmm. And um, this blogger, who to this day I don't know this young man, uh, saw, read the article, and he raised a question that if the equations of fundamental physics are based on information theory, essentially information theory is at the very center of string theory, how did it get there? Mm-hmm. And his implication is that indeed this is something for theologians to contemplate. So I, you know, that was, again, a, for me, a, a stunning assertion, and uh, it still has yet to be fully studied, but it probably will not be studied by physicists. <laughs> right, right. But it couldn't be uh, proven wrong any more than you could prove wrong that, that in fact, we're not in the, inside the matrix somehow, not really. Ah, uh, well, <laughs> let's talk about the matrix. Okay. Again, I'm a science fiction fan, even to this day, and I remember watching the movies The Matrix and so the thought occurred to me, suppose there were physicists in this movie. How would they figure out that they lived in the Matrix? <laughs> One way they might do that is to look for evidence of codes in the laws of their physics. But you see, that's what had happened to me already. That you found them. 
that we had, I and my colleagues, indeed, we had found the presence of codes in the equations of physics. Not that we're trying to compute something. It's a little bit like doing biology, where if you studied an animal, you eventually run into DNA. And that's essentially what happened to us. These codes right. that we have found, right. they're, they're like the DNA that sits inside of the equations that we study. So, um, yeah, so do we live in the matrix? Well, I told you earlier I thought John Wheeler was crazy. What this experience has taught me was um, if you do physics long enough, you too might become crazy. <laughs> that, that's what happened to me. Um, but um, another physicist by the name of Eugene Wigner uh, cautioned us about this sort of stuff. He said... Is he the one who said the unreasonable effectiveness in mathematics? Eugene Wigner mm-hmm. is the author of a very famous article called On the Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. Mm-hmm. And he basically said that just because you find a single piece of mathematics in two different systems, and I'm paraphrasing, doesn't mean that the two systems are related to each other. So just because we have found these codes sitting in the structure of these supersymmetric equations. And since these codes are like the ones that you might find in a browser, it doesn't mean that a browser is related to reality. But it's fun to think about. (laughs) This is the construct. It's our loading program. Right now, we're inside a computer program? Is it really so hard to believe? Your appearance now is what we call residual self-image. It is the mental projection of your digital self. This... This isn't real. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. In case you hadn't guessed, that was The Matrix, a movie I admit I also love. It may be debatable whether the idea behind The Matrix is any easier to grasp than the idea behind string theory. Toward that end, we suggest Brian Greene's TED Talk, The Universe on a String. We've linked to it at onbeing.org. A colleague in physics of S. James Gates, he brings string theory to life with dazzling, helpful visuals. He describes what scientists call strings as dancing filaments of energy. And you can also see some wonderful pictures of James Gates' adinkras at onbeing.org. While you're there, subscribe to our email newsletter. Each week, you get a link straight to our latest podcasts, invitations to live events, and a list of most popular blog posts. Click on the newsletter link at onbeing.org. Coming up... What James Gates' life in science has taught him about how fallibility makes us more complete and play makes us more knowledgeable. I'm Krista Tippett. This program comes to you from APM American Public Media. This podcast is supported by Netflix Instant Streaming. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your computer, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly, streamed now by Netflix. A great value. A fan of classic movies or documentaries? Netflix streaming has lots of options and TV series including Downton Abbey, Amazing Planet, and Biography. 
Watch them using Netflix Instant Streaming and find thousands of other TV series and movies during your free 30-day trial at netflix.com slash APM. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. My guest is the physicist S. James Gates, a leading thinker in the world of string theory and something called supersymmetry. This is a way of reimagining the way the universe works to reconcile the competing theories that now hold sway. He's done some groundbreaking thinking recently, proposing that the mathematical equations that have worked so well for physics up to now may not capture the codes that may underlie the whole of reality. He's been talking about an article he wrote which introduces a West African word, adinkras, to describe visual objects, geometric symbols that may unlock some of science's deepest puzzles. The piece you wrote that I I could kind of follow about the adinkras, you're talking about using visual symbols and geometric symbols And so, you know, in a way, moving beyond equations, adding to the vocabulary that scientists have to describe the nature of reality. And what it it made me think of, it made me think of the way, in terms of language, language, that there are truths you can convey with poetry that you simply can't get at with, you know, factual sentences. Is is that... No, no, that's exactly right. And in some sense, that's what's been driving me in a lot of this effort to develop this. Because remember I told you there are these unsolved problems Mm -hmm. that are out there hanging around? Well, I became convinced that using the language that I and my colleagues have been developing for 30 and 40 years was probably not going to allow us to solve these mathematical problems. So I was consciously looking for an alternative language. A moment ago, you used poetry versus prose. Mm-hmm. I was kind of looking for a new, a new uh, prose that would allow me to get at these problems in a way that no one had ever thought about before. So mm-hmm. the, that was quite conscious that we d- tried to develop this alternative viewpoint to study these properties of the equations. We didn't set out to create a graphical image-based language, but... As I said earlier, mathematics often seems as though it tries to make you tell its story. That's what happened to me. Hmm. In this study, I was driven to this image-based approach. Right, so it pointed you also to needing different tools for telling the story. Exactly, because it turns out it's about listening. In a very strange way, it's about listening, as if one would listen to what a character says as you're trying to author a story. (laughs) You listen very carefully, Mm -hmm. and it's amazing what happens. And doesn't that word, adinkras, also connote hidden meanings? Yes. Uh, Adinkras have uh, existed in West Africa, uh, and not our mathematical type, obviously, but the word has existed in West African cultures for a very long time. And Adinkras are symbols that have hidden meaning. Uh, One of my favorite is one that was the cover of the uh, British magazine Physics World, in which our story was the cover story. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's an adinkra, which you look at it, it's a bunch of shapes, and it translates roughly as, he who does not know can become knowing by education. And so it's a symbol that, for me, I thought was a great choice. And I have to credit my editor because I I didn't know this. Mm. But it's a great choice for what physicists do. 
we become knowing through education. And our education is actually a dialogue with mathematics on the one hand and nature on the other. Hmm. Well, um, this is kind of woven through our conversation, but there's something so lyrical and whimsical about a lot of, just for starters, the way physicists name things. <laughs> you know, I mean, quark. Well, we could think of so many examples. When I, I remember reading when the Hadron Collider made its first observation of a new particle and the language was that it was made up of a beauty quark and a beauty anti-quark. <laughs> I mean, what is yes. it? Yes. Well, you know, I, you know I, I, there are a couple of different interpretations people have of, about this sort of naming things. And yes, we do it in a whimsical manner. Uh, one reason quite possibly is because we are so frustrated most of the times that we get delirious when we find something new and nice. <laughs> That's one explanation I've heard people give. Uh, it's kind of a tradition that's been established that, uh, you know, we're having a little bit of fun. And it probably can be traced back to Murray Gell-Mann and his use of the word quark because he's the person who did that. There was another physicist by the name of George Zweig who would have called them aces if he had had his way, but quarks won out. Why would he have called them aces? Quarks was from, was it from James Joyce? From, that's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. But the point is that who, you know, the person who gets to these things first, yeah. you get to choose the name. And they, George and Murray were actually working independently of each other. So they didn't know hmm. uh, that they had both gotten to the same place. Right. And Murray Gelman, he also coined this phrase, the eightfold way. Absolutely. I mean, that's another kind of thing you'll find a play with language that has this these Buddhist yes. echoes. Um, yes. All I can say, you know, when I was young, I found that kind of stuff quite, sort of annoying, quite frankly. I'm like, why couldn't they name it uh, like the chemists? You know, right. chemists use nice, reasonable words like <laughs> electronegativity. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but we physicists, as I said, I think partly it's the joy in what we do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I've just passed my 61st birthday. I'm having more fun now than I've ever had thinking and doing theoretical physics. And that perhaps is reflected in the way that I use language to describe the things that, that I'm doing and that I and my collaborators find. Um, it's a kind of consistent with the way that w we work these days and, and uh, the, the fun that we have. And yeah. I, I, I suspect this will continue for a very long time in theoretical physics. Yeah, is another one I, I found just digging around about you, sizzling black holes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what, that's what Stephen, from my perspective, that's what Stephen Hawking did. Earlier we talked about the mountaintop and the rainforest. Yeah. He's the person who said, hey, you up there on the mountain and hey, you here on the, down, down there in the rainforest. I can get to the tree line, and you guys have got to agree on something. Right. And that's effectively what Stephen did with his sizzling black holes. There's a line of yours. Um, I'd love for you to tell me what it means. We talked about how different part of that tree line where he was looking both directions was different explanations of gravity. But you said this. Um, gravity is the odd man out for deep philosophical reasons. Yes. Talk to me about the deep philosophical reasons. Well, first of all, let me use a phrase that uh, my colleague uh, Steven Weinberg used in the Elegant Universe video. He said that when Newton described gravity, he joined the celestial with the terrestrial. <laughs> and that's kind of right, because the celestial in those days of Newton was, gee, why do the planets move around the sun in the way they do? Why does the moon stay up in the way that it does? 
the terrestrial, well, why does an apple fall on my head if I'm sitting mm-hmm. under the apple tree? So Newton comes up with an equation that describes both of these things. And yet most of what we scientists do, with the exception of people like astronomers and cosmologists, mostly what we do is look inward. And so that was the thing that I was alluding to is that a large fraction of the fundamental science that has been done to this point in our species history has been inward looking. And Mm. when you get to the point of saying that by going inward, you actually wind up having to face the outward looking part of our universe. Mm. To me, that that's a different sort of philosophical transition, which has been occurring in theoretical physics for about two decades now, where we've been forced to think that, gee, you gotta, you actually have to look in both directions. You have to be that person at the tree line who understands what's going on from the mountaintop view, but also from being under the canopy of the primeval forest. You have to understand both of those viewpoints. And that, to me, is a, that's a different kind of philosophical approach. I'm Krista Tippett with On Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, uncovering the codes for reality with string theorist James Gates. not sure if this is at all correct, but it seems to me that the word force, I mean, you know, I'm not sure as a non-physicist exactly what the difference is between force and energy. And I, I, I'm wondering, uh, is, is yeah. force a term that physicists are using more or differently now? Yeah, we do. Yeah, well, we do because, well, one thing I tell people is when you get people like me uh, talking about physics to non-physicists, we're going to lie to you. <laughs> and uh, but we're lying to you in the in the service of truth. So <laughs> so the point is that if I'm teaching uh, a class of physicists, there's a very precise meaning of the word force. Uh, if I'm teaching that same class of physicists, there's a very precise meaning of the word energy. If I'm talking to the public, mm-hmm. I cannot trot out three lines of equations to talk about what the differences are. But what I can do is to tell an accurate story about the way the universe works. And in that sense, the forces between things like electrons also represent a form of energy because photons carry energy. And so I will blur that distinction in the service of trying to get this larger message out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, force is is another one of those words. Or when you start talking about things like that and the way nature works, that language also can be theologically evocative for people. It can be. And um, one of the assertions of science is that we don't know everything and that in order to increase our knowledge, we have to be in dialogue with nature. And it has to be a constant dialogue. And it's not sufficient to end that dialogue because as we increase our ability to measure nature, we can ask questions at a finer and finer level. And so we keep finding new things, not because nature is changing, but because we are increasing our capacity to ask the questions of nature. On the other hand, there could well be things 
that we can't measure. And if that's the case, that falls outside of the realm of science. Mm -hmm. As I have experienced science, it's about what I can measure. It's about what humans can discuss and create and ultimately falsify. It's, in fact, not about the things that I see in faith. So um, although it may seem theological, as I have experienced science, I don't see how it can be theological. So, you know, your science, the science you do, is not about um, human life. I mean, no. it's not explaining. It, your science is not explaining what it means to be human uh, biologically. No, or, right? no, but, no. but how does the science you do, the view you have of the universe, you know, how would you think about how that then informs your sense of what it means to be human? Well, I think the deepest message I take from science is that as humans, we actually have to embrace our fallibility. We have to embrace hmm. what we are in terms of our ability to measure, our ability to know, and that by embracing these, what by em embracing uncertainty, actually, because I think a major difference in the way that scientists view the universe and perhaps non-scientists, is that science, in my experience, does not permit us the illusion of certainty. It does not allow us to say we can be certain. And that's one thing that causes very great difficulty in talking to the public. Um, when you, as a scientist, as when we talk to each other and someone says, what do you know? First of all, that the word know implies knowledge, Knowledge is a very finite thing. And when you ask a scientist about a measurement, we will tell you two things. We will tell you a number. That'll be something we have measured. And then we will tell you something called the range of uncertainty. Okay. And what that represents is how good we are at measuring it. And if in science, if you give the first number without the second, it's actually, it's considered bad science. So... We are forced by the structure of science to recognize human fallibility, human limits. And because I see in science a, a call for us to always be mindful of our limits, I don't then understand how science can actually be used to attack faith. Mm -hmm. Science is, is not equipped to do that. If it's something we can measure, sure, that's in the realm of science. But if you're talking about things that are outside the realm that I can measure, my feeling is that you, you, if you're going to be honest with science, you have to be mute. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I think about what comes to me when I read you and talk to you and look at your work and in terms of your humanity being informed by your science, I mean, I also think of things like just the joy you described a minute ago in, in doing this and also the, and this is another way to talk about what you just said about fallibility, the huge perspective that you get. Um, I mean, I watched a video of you just being interviewed informally at a gathering in Australia, I believe. Yes. Where somebody was talking to you about race. 
Yes. You know, and I mean, it's it's it one of one of the many credentials you have. One of the distinctions is you know, that you are, I believe, the first African American physicist just to hold an endowed chair, and you went to segregated schools for a time in your childhood. But does this view of the universe you have now, you know, how did, what does it do with that kind of obsession that we have culturally? Hmm. When I look at what science does for us, the fact that we can study our genomic structure, the DNA that's inside of each of our cells, and use that to reconstruct the human story of populating the planet, that to me is the kind of demonstration of what science does for us. In this part of the story, it tells us how the part of humanity that we normally call European, how they're related to the part of humanity that we call African, to the part of humanity we call Asian, and the various populations. It literally tells us a story that many religions have said for millennia, Hmm. that all humans belong to a single family. And now science does it with a precision that none of them could. It can tell us how your cousin... Uh, in uh, northern France is related to a relative in uh, Botswana or how the uh, native people of South America are related to the African peoples of, uh, say, uh, Somalia. This story has been revealed through the workings of science. And so by embracing our limits, by embracing our fallibility, we become more knowledgeable. Someone recently reminded me that Einstein said that imagination is more important than knowledge. I think that's a, you like to quote that as well. I do because it puzzled me for so long in my life. How uh, could that possibly be true? Really? Well, I just wanted to ask you, you know, where's your imagination taking you now? But tell me first why it puzzled you so much. Well, because earlier we talked about my life of imagination and how I, I use that to deal with the, the difficult circumstance of losing my mother as, a, as an 11-year-old child. So for a long time in my life, Imagination was the world of play. It was reading about astronauts and monsters and traveling in galaxies and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Invaders from outer space on Earth, you know, all of that stuff. That was all in the world of the imagination. On the other hand, reality is all about us and it's constraining and it can be painful. But the knowledge we gain is critical for our species to survive. So how could it be that play is more important than knowledge? And it took me years to figure out an answer. And the answer turns out to be rather strange, I believe. The bottom line is the reason imagination is more important than knowledge is because imagination turns out to be the vehicle by which we increase knowledge. Hmm. And so if you don't have imagination, you're not going to get more knowledgeable. And so... That's why I I finally came to understand that statement of Einstein. Mm. So what's especially piquing your imagination and your curiosity now? 
Well, we're still trying to solve some of these 30-year-old problems. We've got these new tools called the Dinkras. We're, we're trying to understand them at a far more precise level. Um, it turns out that these things apparently are new pieces of mathematics. Mm. So that occupies my imagination. Uh, it's trying to get this story complete. We're nowhere near completing the story. When I and my student, um, a young woman from Pakistan by the name of Lubna Rana, first started this journey, I had a sense that we had stepped uh, onto a new mathematical continent. I felt a little bit like Columbus. I still have a sense that that's where we are. Um, if supersymmetry shows up in nature, then this mathematics says something very powerful about the universe. If supersymmetry doesn't show up in nature, this is still some, what I suspect is going to ultimately be found to be really intricate and beautiful and perhaps important mathematics. So my imagination sits on those subjects in science these days. Sylvester James Gates, Jr. is the Toll Professor of Physics and Director of the Center for String and Particle Theory at the University of Maryland in College Park. And he serves on President Obama's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. In 2013, he was awarded the National Medal of Science and elected to the National Academy of Sciences. In closing, we asked James Gates to read a story for us that he likes to tell. He speculates that with computers, the language of mathematics, and therefore the view physicists have on reality, might become more accessible to more of us. He suggests this by way of an analogy with music. Imagine a world in which there existed no sound at all, but where there were beings who were roughly equal to us in intelligence. On this world, could music exist? Now, many people would say the answer is no, because there's no sound. But I would argue the answer is yes. If by some means one of these beings happened upon the idea of musical scoring, then they would have access to music. They might be inspired to marvel at the beauty and the elegance and the power of this world of symbolic representation. With the introduction of sound in the form of musical instruments, of course, that changes everything in our story. In our world, we know of musical geniuses who have never learned to read scores. I have a suspicion that, with a sufficiently long interaction between humans and their computers, something like this might happen with mathematics. I can imagine a mathematical genius who has never learned to manipulate their traditional symbols. This would herald an enormous shift for human culture. To delve more deeply into James Gates' thinking, go to our website at onbeing.org. There you'll also find lots of ways to listen to this interview again and share it with others. Also, please consider subscribing to our email newsletter with a heads up on new podcasts, news of live events, and behind-the-scenes insights. We ask for your email address. That's all. Click on the newsletter link at the top of any page on our website. Again, that is onbeing.org. On Being, On Air, and Online is produced by Chris Hegel. Stephanie Bell is our coordinating producer. Our senior producer is Dave McGuire. Trent Gillis is senior editor. And I'm Krista Tippett. 
On Being is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org and the John Templeton Foundation. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, the delightful slam poet Sarah Kay. She teaches teenagers to listen while finding their voices. Please join us. This is APM, American Public Media.